Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for listening and making a commitment to learning. Hope everybody is doing well. I'm your host. I'm Jordan Porter, and Yvonne is out tonight, but we have our wonderful Ed Durham with us still learning all the cardiology things. I'm telling you, Ed, these episodes have been super popular, and I'm super excited about it. So welcome back. Thanks for continuing on the series. I am super excited to be here. So everybody is super everything at this point. Yeah, right. I'm happy that it seems to be like a lot of people are, I mean, I've learned a ton. I even go back to work and I'm like, I learned about a reverse PDA. (laughs) So um, it's been, it's been really good. And I'm hopeful that we'll have more cardio stuff coming up. Um, but this week we're talking about valve disease, which I know we covered a lot in our basics episodes and our physical exam episode, just the murmurs and the sounds and stuff like that. But I'm hoping that this week we'll kind of get into more like the anatomy and physiology of what's happening to the valves. Yeah. Um, I think that because valvular degeneration and dogs, particularly small breed dogs is so common mm-hmm. that you kind of can't help but talk about it when you talk about other things like, oh, hey, let's talk talk about murmurs. Well, guess what? The most common murmur you're going to hear is dogs with mitral valve degeneration. So mm-hmm. it, you kind of can't help but hit on it. But we, I think that we can talk a little more about the ins and outs, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> blood flow through the valves. I think that's a good pun. That's a pretty good pun. I got to admit, I just (laughs) just thought of it. (laughs) I surprised myself. (laughs) I kind of (laughs) did. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there's like a true definition to valve disease, just because all of There actually is. Okay. So um, you can think of derangements to the valves in three broad categories. Mm -hmm. And one of the cardiologists I used to work with would say, you can have osis, or dysplasia. So dysplasia is going to be congenital defects of the valve. So that's your pulmonic stenosis, your mm-hmm. mitral dysplasia, tricuspid dysplasia of the Labrador retriever, things that are true developmental abnormalities. So that's your one class. Okay. Then your other class are itis. So that's going to be valvular infections, right? Bacterial endocarditis is where we see that. And that can affect any valve. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, there are some species predilections. So dogs, it's primarily, we see infections of the aortic and occasionally the mitral valve. Um, Fortunately, cats rarely get infective endocarditis, so that's pretty good, or bacterial endocarditis, you call it what what you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I have seen it in a cat before, and it was on the aortic valve. My understanding is that reports in the literature 
cats tend to be more right-sided, so tricuspid mm. and pulmonic, but I've never seen it because it's so rare. Yeah. Um, but like cattle are almost always tri tricuspid and, and pulmonic endocarditis. Really, really weird. Interesting. So, so you have your dysplasia developmental, you have itis, things that are infective, and then you have osis, what we work when I started doing this, the term was endocardiosis. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly fine. Um, there's now sort of a plethora of names. There's not a single version that everyone agrees on. You get this sort of set of um, chronic valvular degeneration, mixomatous mm -hmm. valvular degeneration seem to be the two big ones right now. Um, and then there's various versions of that, you know, chronic mitral valve degeneration. But essentially what you're talking about is an age-related change to the valve that causes it to become thickened and loss of coaptation of the valve leaflets when the valve closes. So okay. that's kind of what we're talking about. The word mixomatous is a term from path pathology where there's a mixed bag of causes basically that occur at the cellular level so so like would a ruptured chordae tendine fall under that it comes under the heading of the valvular degeneration because it's okay. usually associated with a valve that's already thickened okay and the thing to remember so backing up have a step Primarily valvular degeneration affects the mit mitral valve. And mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why that is, but it's probably due to the pressures that the left side of the heart ha has to contend with. Yeah. Um, but you do see it in tricuspid valve. You do see it occasionally in the aortic valve. Um, pulmonic valve seems to be pretty immune to it. Again, I don't have a clear ex explanation of why that is. Um, so primarily we're talking about the mitral valve is where the biggest thing is. And the valve tissues themselves are made up of uh, three distinct layers, which I'm going to confess, I can't remember the names of off the top, top of my head. I should have looked that up before we started. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you have, obviously you have an epithelial layer and then you've got some, you know, in, internal layers of the valve. And what happens is, those layers begin to undergo fib fibrosis. Mm -hmm. um, and as that changes over the life of the pet, the valve leaflets get more and more thickened and they will start to leak because the valves don't make a nice tight seal when they close. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the mitral valve is that the mitral valve itself is not a single unit. So if you think about something, and this is true for the tri tricuspid valve too. So the, the atrioventricular valves are different from what we call the semilunar valve, which is aortic and pulmonic, in that they have attachments that's the chordate tendine mm -hmm. that actually keep them closed during systole. Oh, okay. So, 
it's almost counterintuitive to think of, but let's take something really simple like the pulmonic valve because it's far away from everything else. It kind of lives off on the right heart all, all by itself. Yeah. And there's no cordic tendae attached to it. It simply opens and closes by the change of pressure in the right ventricle and the pulmonary ar ar artery. So when the right heart contracts and pressure in the right ventricle exceeds pressure in the pulmonary artery, the pulmonic valve opens, blood rushes out until the heart reaches the end of its contraction. And then as the pressure in the right ventricle starts to drop when the heart relaxes, as soon as the pressure is less in the ventricle than it is in the pulmonary artery, mm -hmm. blood moves backwards and it closes the, closes the valve. And they just close on each other. All the leaflets collapse on each other and they stop blood, blood flow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a simple valve function. But the mitral valve in particular, because it's under greater pressures mm -hmm. and the difference between the two chambers that it separates, so left atrium from left ventricle, the difference in those two chambers is dramatic, like, you know, 20 times higher, basically, yeah. from one side of the valve to the other, right? So you would need a massive valve to hold that much pressure difference. So yeah. the way the body found that is, rather than having just the pressure close the valve, the valve closes with the increase in pressure in the left ventricle. And when it does, as the heart contracts, the papillary muscles contract as well. Oh, okay. And when they do, they pull down on the mitral valve to keep it from buckling back up into the left atrium. Okay. So the papillary muscles are connected to the cordy tendine and the cordy tendine are connected to the mitral valve leaflets like a parachute. There's lots of them. Yeah. It's not just like two. There's a whole array of them. And so when the heart contracts, those papillary muscles pull down on the mit mitral valve. Okay. So when and, those rupture, they, that's when we see it. Yes. Because now... Just like if you were hanging from a parachute and you cut one or two of those strings that hold the parachute into its shape, yeah, right? What's going to happen? That yep. side is going to flip up and yeah. the air is going to rush, rush through. So that's exactly what happens with the ruptured cordae tendine. Interesting. So with the mitral valve in particular, but it's true the the tricuspid as well, we talk about there being a valve apparatus. Mm -hmm. So it's the annulus where the valve leaflets attach to the heart walls. It's the valve leaflets themselves. It's the cords and it's the pap papillary muscles. Mm -hmm. If you derange anything in that structure, your valve can leak. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just like one of those things where my brain all automatically just goes to it's a malfunction of the cordae tendine and that's why it's like floppy. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense that but it's if, actually not. Yeah. It makes sense because that if one thing is off. 
Right. Because I see a lot of most of our patients have thickened mitral valves that don't co-opt well and they leak, mm -hmm. but the chordae ten tendinae are completely intact. Okay. All right. Because the chordae tendinae attach at certain points. Yeah. They don't attach to every point, which means if I get a edge of the valve leaflet that's supposed to co-opt with another edge and it gets thickened and weakened, well, the valve may close and that thickened and weakened part can flip backwards, prolapse is the word, right? Mm -hmm. And the valve will leak at that spot, but the chordae tendinae are still doing their job. Yeah, it's just that it part down. of that pair, right. But part of that parachute has flipped up on its own because it's tattered, let's say. Interesting. That, I mean, that's a really good analogy to make my brain work. Uh, <laughs> Cause yeah, like, so the whole, the whole thing needs to be normal. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about cats having um, systolic anterior motion of the mit mitral valve. And there's really no clear consensus on why this occurs. So systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve is a phenomenon we see in some cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that the mitral valve gets pulled open during sy systole. Mm -hmm. It actually, part of it flips up and flips open and it actually flips open into uh, the outflow tract right in front of the aortic valve. So it causes obstruction to outflow out the aorta, but it also allows mitral regurgitation. And so the question is, well, why does this happen? Mm -hmm. Well, there's theories, theories that there's something wrong with the papillary muscles. There's something wrong with the chordae tendinae. Maybe the valve leaflets longer than they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a effect of high velocity blood flow that pulls this weak valve open. So that whole structure has to be right for everything to work right. Yeah. And it has to be right from day one. <laughs> has to be right from day one. Exactly. Well, day so zero, for I most, guess. So for most of your patients, right, that's exactly what happens is the majority of pets have normal functioning mit mitral valves and they go through their life and do quite well. We've talked about this already that as far as valvular degeneration goes, it's primarily the small breed dogs. It's just what they do. Um, and we talked about that when it comes to DCM, it's primarily large breed dogs. Yeah. Spaniels are right in the middle. They get both. And so the, the typical scenario is for, you know, your poodles, your miniature poodles, the Havanese and what have you is they go for five to seven years, perfectly fine, no murmur, everything's great. But over time, those valve leaflets begin to degenerate mm -hmm. and suddenly you hear a soft murmur at the an annual visit. And that's where people go, oh, he's got a murmur. He didn't have that before. Oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, it's probably mitral valve degeneration that we see. I mean, I'll have a day where I'll do nine echoes and every patient will be a small breed dog. Yeah, I believe that for sure. 
chihuahuas, Havanese, whatever. One of my patients last night that I stayed with actually was a heart failure patient. It was a Doberman though with DCM. So it made me think of all the times that you were like, <laughs> large breed dogs get DCM. <laughs> large breed dogs get D DCM. That's exactly right. Yeah. But we so, did our typical heart failure regimen and he, did, he went home today. So follow up with cardiology next. There you go. Yeah. A little furosemide, a little oxygen, get him on some, some pemobendin as soon as possible. Yeah. And he, he took pill pockets like a champ. So he was such a good patient. <laughs> That's what you like. Um, so then the question becomes, well, what happens with these dogs? Well, depending on how this scenario plays it, oh, backing up half a step. So as everybody probably knows, um, sort of the poster child for valvular degeneration are the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Yeah. And I will give props to all the Cavalier breeders out there because things have changed in the 20 years that I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. So we used to say that if you had a Cavalier that didn't have a murmur by age five, you need to breed that dog. Yeah. We were seeing um, coming in with pretty significant at two and three years of age. What we see now is more, they're not coming in until they're the age of five or above. That's good. So That's good. The yeah. The breeders have done a pretty darn good job. In fact, the cardiologist I work with has a Cavalier and he's, I think he's six now and his heart is still norm normal. I find it so funny that like all these specialists will have the breed, but I find that it's like, I worked with an oncologist who had golden retrievers. You've worked with a cardiologist that has Cavaliers. Like I worked with an internist that had, um, uh, greyhounds. It was, it's a weird thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll take it even one step further. I worked for a clinic, um, in Arizona and, the, it was a, just a gen, general practice, but the veterinarian that I worked with, one of the new guys, really wanted to do or, orthopedic surgery. So he's like, hey, you know, come on, we're going to go to these or, or, orthopedic conferences. And they're always in some place with skiing. Like oh, they're in yeah. fail. Like, uh, what is it about ortho? orthopedic people who want to go places where they can break their bones yeah. i have no idea <laughs> and rip their knees to shreds like yeah, exactly I, I don't know uh <laughs> anyway we digress but so the let's take the sort of common course about outcome here small breed dog gets to be you know middle-aged they develop a soft murmur um, and these murmurs, particularly the mitral valve disease murmurs, they're going to be at the left side of the chest mm -hmm. and they're going to be over what we defined earlier as the left apex or mm -hmm. down by the sternum near below the costochondral junction on the left side. That's going to be the murmurs of mitral regurgitation. And it's really the only thing that lives there. So if you hear a murmur at the left apex, you should be thinking mit mitral regurgitation mm -hmm. until someone does an echo and proves you wrong. 
Okay. In which case you were probably just in the wrong spot. Makes so, sense. Um, and then, you know, typically the, the general practice veterinarian will say, hey, your dog's got a soft murmur. Um, we should take a set of chest x-rays so we have some foundation, or maybe they'll say we'll run a BMP to see if there's any evidence of enlargement, or maybe they'll say, let's do a, you know, why don't you go ahead and get an echo now? We you know about B1 versus B, B2. So, you know, you should go ahead and schedule an appointment with the cardiologist and, you know, fi find out where your pet is. And those are all exactly the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, we typically get the question of, I have a small breed dog that has a murmur. Is it safe for anesthesia? Yeah, and we get that question a lot too. We, we get that question a lot. And so typically they send them for an echo because they kind of want to be covered, I think. Or yeah. they don't, like referring vets don't know what the right thing to do is. but. Here's what the right thing to do is. If you have a dog that is ostensibly healthy and has a, a new soft, you know, like grade three, two, two to three, left apical systolic murmur, then a murmur is not contraindication to anesthesia, but mm -hmm. heart failure is. Yeah. So if you take that patient and then do thoracic radiographs on it and he still has a normal size heart and he has normal pulmonary vasculature and there's no evidence of pulmonary edema then you can safely do anesthesia on on that patient the thing to keep in mind is you're going to choose cardiac friendly drugs and you're going to be very careful and judicious with your intraoperative fluids. Now, just to kind of be a little thorough without getting too much into anesthesia, what are our cardio-friendly drugs that would be best suited? I got a better idea. Let's talk about the cardio-not-friendly drugs. Perfect. <laughs> right? Because it's a little bit, it's a shorter list for one. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, my so, first thought is no dextomator or exactly. dexmedetomidine. Exactly. No alpha agonists, no xylazine, okay. like no alpha twos, right? Yeah. Because what do alpha twos do? Well, alpha twos vasoconstrict. Mm -hmm. And if you think back to one of our previous conversations, we talked about preload, afterload, and contractility. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Okay. So if you vasoconstrict, you effectively cause an increase in afterload. If you have an increase in afterload and the left ventricle contracts, that makes it harder for blood to leave the left ventricle and go out into systemic cir circulation. Well, if you have a leaky mitral valve, where's mm -hmm. that blood gonna go? Well, it's gonna go backwards. You're gonna make the mitral regurgitation worse. Yeah. So you can push a dog that's not having evidence of heart failure into heart failure by giving them an alpha agonist. Makes so sense. So those are right out. That makes sense. Um, the other one that is, and this is 
I would say this is somewhat controversial because you can't, there still is a place for, uh, and that's ACE promazine. You know, I was thinking that you were going to go there <laughs> just because so, like, we never use ACE promazine unless we have to. Right. And a lot of people don't. And so what are the reasons you don't use it? Let's have um, a conversation here. I mean, the only time we do use it is strictly if we have, say, like we have a laryngeal paralysis and we just need the sedation effect that like something like butorphanol or something is just cannot touch. Okay, so that's why you use it. Why do you not use it? What is it about acepromazine from yes. your knowledge base that makes it less attractive than something else? I think because it's just too, I mean, because when we do use it, we dilute it out to one mg per mil. And then yeah. it's just too unpredictable on its sedation effects. Like it's just some dogs, it just knocks out completely with the smallest dose, like just a whiff of it and other dogs. It's like, I don't know. I, I feel, I just don't like how hard it hits. And then like, there's nothing I can do about it after. Like okay. I just. All right. So those are really good points. So let me fill in some of those gaps for, for you. Yeah. So Ace Promazine has a very profound cardiovascular effect. Mm -hmm. And that profound cardiovascular effect is vasodilation. Mm -hmm. And so the reason we use such low doses in it, and when I say low doses, I mean 0 0.01. The dose range is 0 0.01 to 0 0.05. Yeah. Most people I know will do like 0 0.01 to 0 0.02. Yeah, Hardly exactly. Anybody uses 0 0.05 because of the profound vasodilation. The problem with that profound vasodilation is they become hypotensive. The problem with acepromazine as a hypotensive agent is there's no reversal and it's very long lasting. Yeah, like so you can't predict how long our, our patients are gonna be sedated. Well, never mind the sedation effect. It's the vasodilation that yeah. you can't control. Yeah. Right? What are you going to do? Give them an alpha, alpha ag agonist now? <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So that's why most vets like shy away from it or they use it in very small doses because you get profound vasodilation that lasts for six, six to eight hours if you give it I IV. Yeah. Right. So you're stuck with it. The other thing where you mentioned is the variable effects of it. Yeah. Come from the fact that acepromazine as a sedative is easily overridden by increases in symp sympathetic tone. So mm -hmm. as fight or flight goes up, acepromazine's ace effectiveness goes down. Yeah. That's why some of the dogs don't respond to it. It's also why they don't use it in wild animals. Makes sense. It doesn't work. So wound up. It just doesn't, it doesn't do the job. And then like, so, if you can, it, what's, what's kind of that catch 22, at least what I noticed in GP is if we would like redose the ACE promazine, um, for something that we're just like, we need you to like calm down. And then we put them in a dark room. It would hit so hard. Right. Or, you've, like, you've doubled up on it. Yeah. And it, it's just like, it's one of those, I mean, we don't use it anymore. Like, I don't remember the last well, time I used ACE promazine. And part of that 
part of that sedative effect is the fact that their blood pressure is crumped. Yeah. So, and now, now we're worried about the kidneys. Yeah. Um, I actually do still use it. And I have very selective times that I, I, I do use it. Um, however, when I said it was controversial, that none of the, we've, what we've just talked about is what I was re- referring to. So there is an argument to be made that if you have a dog with mitral regurgitation, you want to do anesthesia on, that our discussion we just had about mm-hmm. alpha agonists causing vasoconstriction. Yeah. Well, if that's bad, maybe a little vasodilation is good. So there is an argument to be made that if I give really low doses of acepromazine to a patient with mitral valve disease, now we're talking like 0.005 mg per kg to 0.01, so really down there, um, that I'm going to vasodilate them a little bit. I'm going to reduce afterload. And that's actually going to increase forward flow and mm-hmm. reduce the regurgitation. Okay. All right. So there's an argument to be made for low dose acepromazine in a dog with mit- mitral valve disease. Um, I, mean, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like yeah. it, I, yeah, it has yeah. its place for sure. It has its place for sure. Exactly. Um, the other things that I would, I tend to avoid with dogs with, valve disease, um, I wouldn't do a ket, a ket valve or, okay. you know, I wouldn't do a, a, a ketamine and ben, benzo combo, mostly because I don't want the heart, heart rate increase that comes with it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise, I think ketamine and a benzodiazepine is a beautiful pro- protocol. Like I used to use it all the time. I really like it, but I wouldn't use it in a dog with valve disease because I, I don't want the heart rate. So, I tend to reach for things more like um, a benzodiazepine, mm-hmm. like midazolam, um, and an opioid. I don't care which o- opioid you pick; the one you, you like the best. Yeah. Um, and then, as far as something for induction goes, I, if the dog has valve disease. Although it's not 100% necessary, I tend to prefer Alfaxalone over Propofol. Okay. Um, Only because, actually, if you look at the cardiovascular profiles of Alfaxalone and Atomidate, they're pretty darn comparable. If you add in Propofol to the mix, it's a little more negatively inotropic, meaning it reduces contractility more than those other two drugs. Atomidate's really expensive um, and it tends to burn when, when you give it. So we don't use that very often. Yeah. Um, Alfaxalone is a really nice com- compromise. Now, if my dog is substantially healthy and stable and has normal contractility and function and blah, 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 fine, I'll, I'll give them propofol. It's okay. not a bad drug at all. Um, but if I'm concerned about their function at all, then I will use alfaxalone. And the reason I, I tend to reach for it is because the dogs I'm doing anesthesia on tend to be sicker. Yeah. Right? The dogs I'm doing have bad congenital disease and they've already got solid dysfunction. But if I was doing a, a dental on a seven-year-old schnauzer with my, you know, 
stage B1 valve disease, then pro propofol's just fine. Okay. So that's kind of how I look look at it. And you know, there's a lot of room for dis discussion here. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. We could have that. a whole episode on just anesthesia. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, and and anesthesia VTS might bring a different pers perspective. Like cool. Which would be like, cool to like vary and just see. Yeah the different um, opinions. That's what I, I think that's what I love most about doing this podcast is like getting the different opinions and then just trying to form my own, like from the two. So I think that when we talk about these dogs, when they first present with their murmurs and you want to do some anesthesia on them, then taking a radiograph is a very reasonable approach. If they have no signs of heart failure in the normal heart, then you're fine to go ahead and do you know, basic anesthesia, right? You can clean their teeth. You can take, take off the lung. Um, if you take the radiograph and their hearts are enlarged, then you should get the echo before you do the anesthesia for sure. Um, if they have a very loud murmur, a four or five or six, probably better to get the- Echo first. Echo. That being said, however, remember I said earlier that the loudness of the murmur does not correlate well with severity of disease. Yeah. So, so both things are true here, right? A soft murmur may be very serious disease, but you'll spot that on a radiograph because there'll be cardiac enlargement or signs of heart failure. Yeah. Right. Or you may have a dog with a ruptured cord that now has a normal size heart, but it's got a really loud murmur because it's got a ton of mit mitral regurgitation. Yeah. So, but otherwise the heart is, is fine. Right. Well, the other, well, let me, that's fine. We're not going to go with okay. fine. <laughs> we're going to go, we're going to go with the heart is structurally size normal um, on a radiograph. Okay. okay? So if you have a loud murmur, it's probably reasonable to go ahead and rec recommend the echo. For a dog that you know, you're just seeing, it has a murmur, it is very reasonable to schedule an asymptomatic dog for an echo mm -hmm. once it develops a murmur, a small breed dog in particular, because you wanna stage it. And we talked about these guys um, in our basic discussion when we talked where I mentioned the ACVIM yeah. classification system. So the A, B, 1, B, 2, C, and D. And without spending a lot of time on this, but in case other people didn't listen, A is a dog that is likely to develop valve disease in the future. So that's a cavalier, but it still doesn't have a murmur. Yeah. B1 is a dog that already has a murmur. Um, but on echo, its heart is still normal size and function. B2 is a dog that has a murmur that has uh, increased cardiac dimensions, may or may not have no normal fun function still. Mm -hmm. And then C is the dog with heart disease that is actually crossed into heart failure. And D are the end stage dogs that are re refractory to therapy there you're having a hard time managing these cases so the question with these murmurs that when you first hear them is 
are you a B1 or are mm-hmm. you a B2? Yeah. And the reason that's important again is because if you're a B2, the evidence is really clear that initiation of pemobendin prolongs the disease free period or the symptom free period. Yeah. That's the right way to say it. It's the prolongs the symptom free period, meaning once you start PEMO, you stay out of heart failure longer than if you don't start PEMO. So is pimobendin um, basically the treatment of choice for any of our valve diseases just yes. to protect once, the heart? Once they've crossed into B2, yes. Okay. And this is not even a little bit controversial. Yeah. Like this is clearly proven with a, with a seriously positive benefit. But it's not doing anything specifically for the valve itself. It's just making no. sure that the heart functions. What it's doing is it's, is it's, it, it protects the heart. Um, it, it maintains the function. It will actually, we've seen patients that they go on pemobendin um, and their heart sizes reduce back to normal. Good. Okay. Um, there actually is one study out there that shows this is a really weird thing, but it's true. Um, pemobendin will actually cause a little bit of valve thickening. And there's some theory that, that that valve thickening actually helps close up the holes and leakage reduces. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it is not uncommon. And that's more the- theoretical, but there is definitely a study showing that it, it causes more valve hyper hypertrophy if you will it's almost like um, it works out and just builds muscle <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't just... really build the muscle but it makes the valve thick thicker so the holes get plugged plugged yeah. up and the regurgitant volume goes down so um it's really not uncommon for us to take a b2 dog start them on pemo bend and check them back six months later they've been improved and then we maintain the pemo bend yeah. Because they've improved. You don't take them off of it once they're on it. So and then we do sometimes, well, at least I've noticed sometimes there's some blood pressure medications too, to help with maintaining the pressure. So, but you're talking about keeping the blood pressure down. Yeah. Yeah. So if your dog has concurrent systemic hypertension, mm-hmm. then you might need to put in um, something to reduce afterload. Yeah. It's not uncommon to have dogs on M, M lodipine. Yeah. Um, or hyd- hydralazine, something like that. That's just going to bring that blood pressure down a little bit because of the phenomenon we talked about earlier. If I increase afterload, and this is the way the, the cardiologists would talk about it, they would say, oh, his blood pressure is high. Maybe he would benefit from a little afterload reduction. Yeah. Okay, so they'll add in something that'll reduce the blood pressure, which will reduce the amount of regurgitation because it's the same happens if you give the dexmedetomidine, right? Yeah. Dexmedetomidine, you increase afterload, regurgitation gets worse. Well, if they have high blood pressure and I give them something to lower the blood pressure, then the regurgitation should get better. Because we want to reduce the blood pressure in the heart though too, to make sure that the volume in the heart too, isn't like constantly backing up on itself and stretching out that heart. Right. I mean, like, 
Right. You want to maintain forward flow. Yeah. You want to maintain forward cardiac output. So that takes us to really the next step in the pro progression. So what mm -hmm. happens when your mitral valve leaks? Well, your mitral valve starts to leak and the body says, no, 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 I don't like this. I need to protect the lungs. And so you get left atrial dilation. Yeah. And that's the dilate. That's the body protecting the lungs from the increased pressure that's coming through from the left vent ventricle. And in the normal progression of things, the left ventricle will continue to dilate until it really can't dilate anymore. And then you go into heart fa failure. That's when you tip over, uh, over the edge. Yeah. And that's okay. what causes like fate in our feline patients, because if you get that atrial dilation and then you almost have like stagnant blood flow. Not almost. Uh, you, you do. You, yeah. yeah. You do have the stagnant cause, blood flow, which the forms cause, clot. The cause of left atrial dilation in cats is a little different than in dogs. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a more complex dis discussion. But yeah, that's what happens is as the left atrium dilates, you lose blood flow in, or you lose motion of blood flow typically in the left. And um, not to go too far afield here again, but the what most people call Veer, Veer Chow's triad, mm -hmm. it's actually pronounced Fear, Fear Co. Fearco's triad is to form a clot, you need damage to the end endothelium. Yeah. You need a hy hypercoagulable state mm -hmm. and you need blood stasis. Well, cats are kind of hy hypercoagulable as a species. Yeah. Right. When you stretch the left atrium, you damage the end endothelium and you get blood out in that corner of the left auricle that's not moving. You've got a blood, a blood clot. Yeah, because cats don't do the typical, the quote unquote, typical heart failure like dogs do. They just, which we talked about. Right. They do one of two things. They either get a clot or they get pleural effusion and pulmonary edema. Yeah. They can Good go either cats. way. With, right. Yeah. Back to, they can't breathe or they can't walk. Yeah. There's no, there's no in between for them. <laughs> and every once in a while you'll see a dog that'll form a clot but it's really really rare I'm, so, I'm imagining that you've seen that i've seen one yeah i've seen one i've seen one blood clot in a dog uh in the left left atrium um actually not that long ago it was here at this at this practice where oh, i am nice now. yeah um so if we take this, let's continue down the road of the dilating, dilating, dilating. So you can get pressure in the left atrium higher than the pulmonary uh, venous pressure and the capillary's ability to hold fluid, about 24 millimeters of mercury, and fluid weeps out of the pul pulmonary veins and you get pulmonary edema. Mm -hmm. Um, another possibility is that the left atrium stretches and stretches and stretches so much that you get a, a rent in it is probably the best word. So a tear, you'll mm -hmm. hear people talk about a left atrial rupture. It's not a left atrium that explodes like a balloon. 
Yeah. What happens is it stretches so much that the layers of tissue that form up the atrial wall separate, form like a sieve, and blood can actually flow out of the left atrium into the pericardial space. And then once the pressure is released in the left atrium, it'll come back down and the walls will sort of close up and those patients will stop bleeding into their pericardium. The, the tip off to that is you have a dog with valve disease, pericardial effusion and a blood clot in the peric pericardium that you can see on echo. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I've seen that before, but we didn't, we, that's one of those things where it's like we stabilize it and then we're like, you need to see a cardiologist. Yeah. And, and when it gets to us, we don't tap it, right? You don't tap, tap those. What you do is you keep their blood pressure really low. Like okay. we keep them like at a hundred and like a hundred to 120, 110. Okay. Like we keep them really low because we don't want that left atrial pressure to go up and have them bleed more. This is a pretty serious con condition. And if you can get them through the initial crisis, many dogs will do okay. But the problem mm -hmm. is they have such bad valve disease at that stage that they often will come back in and fail failure. Yeah. Um, and so I've had that hap happen here all also fairly recently. So that's one path of progression. So mitral valve starts to leak over the course of years, months to years, left atrium dilates, left atrium dilates, left atrium dilates, and then you go into heart failure, and then you go from B2 to C. Yeah. And pemobendin delays that, but it doesn't stop it. It's a progressive disease. So yeah. we echoed we echo B2 dogs every six months to monitor for pro progression. If they start showing signs of heart failure, you know, the coughing more, then, you know, we have them come, come in sooner. Yeah. Going back a step to something you mentioned earlier, the ruptured chordae tendinate. Yeah. So it's the same, but it's different. So here's what's different about it. Let's say I'm a dog that has B1 valve disease and I have a little bit of, of thick, thickening of the valve. I've got a little bit of prolapse. I've got mild mitral regurgitation. And then I suddenly rupture a cord and now I've got severe mitral regurgitation. So I've gone from a small amount to a large amount in an instant, right? Mm -hmm. Left atrium doesn't have time to dilate to deal with that pressure. And those are the dogs that go into heart failure acutely. Oh, okay. Like one minute, he's a grade three, maybe a grade two. And the next minute he's a six and they're full on failure in a few hours. Wow. Okay. They come in through the ER, extremely dys dysnic and you, you know, you get them stabilized, you do your oxygen, furosemide, yada, yada, yada. And when you finally do get to, we usually don't even echo those guys right away. Yeah. We like get them stabilized, get them squared away. You go back and echo them and sure enough, their LV is still normal. Their left atrium is maybe mildly dilated and they've just got this monstrous amount of re regurgitation. Once Those again, the ones that you see like on echo the floppy valves yeah okay yeah well 
depends on what you mean by floppy. So there's a thing known as the flail leaf leaflet. Yeah. And that's a leaflet that actually during systole flips all the way back into the left atrium like a flail. If you know what a flail is, it's a yeah. medieval it's a medieval weapon with the ball on a chain, similar to a mace. I mean, um, I've seen that before, but I've seen some where it looks like it's literally just blowing in the wind, but not necessarily with like yeah. blood flow. Yeah. Well, then that's, pro <laughs> that's probably a ruptured cord. Okay. Um, and often on the echo, you can see the cord. I can see it flipping back and forth between the ventricle and the at atria throughout the cardiac cycle. Okay. Yeah. So there's that part of it too. Um, but you can have dogs that still have all their cords intact, but have severe pro prolapse just because the mitral valve leaflet structure is so broken down mm -hmm. that it doesn't really hold its shape anymore. It yeah. just completely buckles back into the left or the left at atrium. So yeah. that's, all of these things happen on sort of a, a spectrum, right? It's not uh, like it's this or that. It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. You can have, you know, moderate thickening and moderate prolapse or just kind of depends. The other thing that will happen is you can have what we think of as a, a major cord rupture and a minor cord rupture. So sometimes you get a minor cord rupture and you get a lot more regurgitation, but it's not enough to tip, tip them in, into failure. Okay. But you get a major cord rupture and now they're like full, full on failure in a few hours. Read, fa failure. Yeah. And then they're being rushed into your ER for your life-saving therapy. Nice. Good um, times. We do see regurgitation on the tricuspid valve. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, one of the things that can happen with this valvular is as the pulmonary arterial pressure, sorry, the pulmonary venous pressures increase in the lungs. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the way the lungs are set up, if I have increased pressure in the veins, there's an artery that feeds into that, right? Yeah. Down at the level of the cap capillaries. So if I have increased pressure in the pulmonary arteries that means that the pressure in the arterial side will go up as well and for most patients that's not such a huge deal but it is possible left-sided heart failure to make that pulmonary arterial pressure high enough to have true pulmonary hypertension oh, okay which we we treat not a lot of pulmonary hypertension, but some. And I know just like upon my research that to truly diagnose pulmonary hypertension, you need like an echo. Absolutely. Well, or you have to put a cat catheter in inside the heart because it's really poor form to cut your patient's chest open and put one of those blood pressure cuffs around the pulmonary artery artery to measure pressures yeah because you get the measurement wrong That's and everything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's really only two ways to measure pulmonary pressures and one is to do direct catheterization of mm -hmm. the heart um and non-invasively we do it with echo with uh, doppler and that's 
that's a long explanation. Yeah, yeah. Let me, well, it just involves a lot of math. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll explain it like this very, very quickly. It has to do with the difference in the pressure between the right ventricle and the right atrium. So what we do is we measure the velocity of tricuspid regurgitation. Mm-hmm. And then from that, we do a calculation that estimates the pulmonary arterial pressure. Okay. Right. And so we'll say, you know, anything over most, most cardiologists will give you up to 40. Anything mm-hmm. up, oh, like if you do a blood, blood pressure on a dog, like a, you know, arterial blood pressure, like, you know, and you get 140, you're not going to go, oh my God, he's got, he's got systemic hypertension. He's over 120. He allows for biological variation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So same thing with the lungs, normal arterial pressure is reported as like 25 over 10. So most cardiologists will give you a fudge factor of up to 40 mm-hmm. millimeters of mercury. You, you cross o- over 40 and then we're saying you've got pulmonary hi- hi- hypertension. Now, yeah. whether you need to treat it or not is another discussion. Yeah. Because, you know, mild pulmonary hi- hypertension, meh, who, who cares? Yeah. Severe pulmonary hi- hypertension. Well, that's a whole nother issue. Yeah. Severe pulmonary hypertension is not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. And to make it even worse, well, fortunately, the most common cause of pulmonary hi- hypertension in dogs is heartworm disease. So yeah. That's pre- yeah. That's he- <laughs> um, to make it even worse, though, this is a little more crazy fit physiology for you. If I have a dog that has, let's say they've got concurrent lung disease and they're in heart failure. So they've got, let's say, moderate to moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension. If I just automatically throw them on sildenafil without using some caution and I dramatically lower the pulmonary arterial pressures in mm-hmm. the lung, that actually can lead to more pump pulmonary edema because I still have elevated pulmonary venous pressures in the lungs from the left-sided heart failure. It sounds complicated. It is. It's very complicated. So the cardiologists have to be very careful when they're treating a dog for heart failure. You can't just suddenly reduce PA pressures without the risk making the heart failure worse. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of, you know, where this goes is that there is one last thing I want to talk talk about because I know that um, this is important and and we've filled an hour I think yeah definitely one of the things that I see pretty commonly um, in my my teaching and in the cases we get at the hospital are patients who come in on pemobendin and furosemide that have never had a chest x-ray, they've never had an echo. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of that is veterinarians wanting to make sure that they've covered all of their bases. Yeah. But what happens is this is the dog that comes in to the referring veterinarian that has a murmur and they're coughing. And so the referring veterinarian says, murmur and coughing must be heart failure, give them PEMO, Lasik, send them to a cardiologist. Yeah. Right. Like, 
like that's a 15 minute visit. Yeah. When right answer is probably more murmur and coughing. Let's take a chest x-ray, see if he's in heart failure. He's not in heart failure. Oh, the cough is from something else. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe you need a cough suppressant and pemobendin and go see the cardiologist. And so I think that it's, it's very useful for people not to just link a cough in a dog and a murmur as automatically being heart, heart failure. Yeah. Now, if you're listening to that dog and they have crackles, that's a different story. Yeah. On the other hand, as we discussed, crackles are not always heart failure. So going back to our physical exam thing, if you're going to have heart failure and crackles, your patient's going to be tachycardic. They're going to have a high heart rate. Yeah. If you have a murmur and crackles and a low heart rate, then you need to think more pulm pulmonary disease with a concurrent mur murmur. Yeah. Either way, and every veterinarian office could do this, right? Take a set of chest films. Yeah. Just take the films because A, it makes money for your office. Mm -hmm. um, B, you're providing good medicine, or maybe it should be A and then B, right? The first thing you're doing is you're providing the proper care. Like your dog is coughing. We need to know what's going on with, with the lungs. Yeah. If you take a chest x-ray on a dog that's coughing and has a murmur, and again, the heart is normal size and shape, then the chances of it being heart failure are pretty slim. Yeah. And you need to treat the cough as a separate problem. Yeah. So... I would caution, and I know I'm not talking to the veterinarians out there, but I think that it's okay for the technicians to say, hey, you know, this dog's coughing as a murmur. How about a set of chest x -ray? Oh, definitely. It's, think about it's that, Doc. part of our responsibility to advocate for our patient. And like you said, it, it's, we're doing business for the practice as well. Like we, right. we want to do good medicine, but we also want to bring in money for our practice. Like it, right, because if our practice thrives, then we thrive. Yeah. Um, and actually, that in, in a business sort of sense, I think we may have talked about this before, is that many times veterinarians see staff as someone who takes money out of their clinic, not someone oh, yeah. who brings money into their clinic. And so if you can advocate for your patient and say, hey, well, before we start this you know, furosemide that's going to be hard on the kidneys, maybe we should take a set of chest x-rays. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like that's a simple conversation and a lot of veterinarians are going to be open to the idea because Very they're busy, so. you know, the brains are on six different cases at once. Like it's simple to just be like, let's get them in and out and get moving. But um, I, I the definitely way that don't think that's crossing can, the boundary. And I can tell you all that the way a cardiologist approaches these things, and I say this not just because my cardiologist does it, but because I've watched them do this for 20 years. And I've watched some of the biggest names in cardiology, like people who have their names on the backs of lots of books. Yeah. Right? This is the way they approach it. If the dog comes in and it's exactly the same as it was at the last visit, then we just need to do the, the monitoring echo to make sure they haven't progressed yeah if they come in and the murmur is the same but they're coughing more well now we need a chest chest x-ray too because something has changed in the lungs yeah and maybe it's maybe it's pneumonia 
Maybe it's just tr tracheal compression. Maybe it's bron bronchitis. Maybe they're a Westie. I don't know. Um, maybe they're Pomeranian and they actually have tra tra tracheal collapse. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that's how they look at it. It's like something has changed. The lungs are different. Let's take a picture of the lungs. Yeah, you, you literally never know. It's the tip of the week. It doesn't always, coughing doesn't always have to be heart related. Oh, it doesn't. But I think that a lot of people hear murmur, cough, they must go together and they yeah. don't. Yeah, no, I, so, I completely agree. Tip of the week. <laughs> tip, tip, tip of the week. So that's kind of the natural progression of valvular heart disease. And then, you know, how do you treat it? Well, you go back to, it's just treating heart, heart failure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, that's what it is, treating heart, heart failure. Yeah. I think we covered a lot of good ground here. Uh, <laughs> I know we kind of went off on a couple of separate topics, but um, I do agree that tip of the week is just take those chest x-rays. Um, if there's a cough, even though you hear a murmur, they might not always correlate. It could be collapsing trachea, it could be pneumonia, it could be some weird fungal thing. You never know. That's when you get a history and ask if there's some travel uh, <laughs> over to the right. West coast. Um, and also, um, while we're on that tip, tip, tip of the week, part B is if you want to do anesthesia in an ostensibly healthy dog with a soft murmur, take the x-ray. If they're not in failure, you're probably fine to do the anesthesia. Yeah. Great, great tips. Um, and now for the question of the week. Question of the week this week is going to be, what have you liked most so far about the cardiology series? And do you hope to hear more? And if so, what, what are you hoping to hear about? Um, we do have a couple episodes in the works still, but just want to get some ideas out there. Um, I know I've learned a ton during these past couple episodes um, that I take back to work. And like I said, I had that DCM patient last night that I was like, you're tachycardic and you have crackles and <laughs> your heart is big on x-rays. <laughs> um, so and I'll just reiterate that that tech, that tachycardia thing is very important. Yeah. You know, if you're in failure, your heart rate is not going to be nor normal. It was definitely not our normal, like hundred beats per minute. It was, I think when that dog came in, it was 200 beats per oh, minute. Oh yeah. It was, Sorry. It, the folks at home can't see the face I just made. Doberman, 200 beats a minute. Ah, the NB tech. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was, he was in oxygen for a little bit. And then um, by the time I got in to him, though, I, I, he ended up being back down to, I think when I got first got in, I counted 110 beats per minute. So he was corrected pretty, pretty rapidly. <laughs> um, I like that. And, and he did, he did really well. So, um, Good job. yeah. My doctor has gotten very good at his cardiology. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, all right. Well, I think that wraps up this week. Thank you so much, Ed, for, again, all the awesome information. Uh, if you want to answer a question of the week, I post that on Facebook. So just kind of take a look out for that. Or you can always email me at jordan at internalmedicineforvettex.com or yvonne at internalmedicineforvettex.com. And in case anyone cares, turkeys get dilated cardiomyopathy there's oh. your thanksgiving tip of the week <laughs> i did not know that uh. gotta love the the random facts but all right yep. everybody thank you so much for listening hope everybody has a great week hope everybody has a great thanksgiving thank you again ed and we will talk to you guys next time bye having me jordan
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.